Key Out of Time by Andre Norton, Chapter 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis. Key Out of Time by Andre Norton. Chapter 9 Battle Test. Babble of speech, cries, sounded muffled to Ross, made a mounting clamor on the deck. Had the raider's ship been boarded? Was it now under attack? He strove to hear and think through the pain in his head, the bewilderment. Locust? He was certain that the Vakakian had been dumped into the same hold. The only answer was a low moan, a mutter from the dark. Ross began to inch his way in that direction. He was no seaman, but during that worm's progress he realized that the ship itself had changed. The vibration which had carried through the planks on which he lay was stilled. Some engines shut off. One portion of his mind put that into familiar terms. Now the vessel rocked with the waves, did not bore through them. Ross brought up against another body. Locust? Ah! The fire! The fire! The half-intelligible answer held no meaning for the Terran. It burns in my head! The fire! The rocking of the ship rolled Ross away from his fellow prisoner towards the opposite side of the hole. There was a roar of voice, bull strong above the noise on deck, then the sound of feet back and forth there. The fire! Oh! Locust's voice rose to a scream. Ross was now wedged between two abutments. He could not see and from which his best efforts could not free him. The pitching of the ship was more pronounced. Remembering the two vessels he had seen pounded to bits on the reef, Ross wondered if the same doom loomed for this one. But that disaster had occurred during a storm, and save for the fog this had been a calm night, the sea untroubled. Unless, maybe the shaking his body had received during the past few moments had sharpened his thinking unless the Foana had their own means of protection at the Seagate, and this was the result. The dolphins, what had made Tina Ra and Tal, react as they did. And if the rover ship was out of control, it would be a good time to attempt escape. Locust? Ross dared to call louder. Locust? He struggled against the drying strands which bound him from shoulder to mid-thigh. There was no give in them. More sounds from the upper deck. Now the ship was answering to direction again. The Terrans heard sounds he could not identify, and the ship no longer rocked so violently. Locust moaned. As far as Ross could judge, they were heading out to sea. Locust? He wanted information. He must have it. To be so ignorant of what was going on was unbearable frustration. If they were now prisoners in a ship leaving the island behind, the threat of that was enough to set Ross struggling with his bonds until he lay panting with exhaustion. Ross? Only a Vakakin could make that name a hiss. Here, Locust. But of course it was Locust. I am here. The other's voice sounded oddly weak, as if it issued from a man drained by a long illness. What happened to you? Ross demanded. The fire, the fire in my head, eating, eating. Locust's reply came with long pauses between the words. 
The Terran was puzzled. What fire? Lokith had certainly reacted to something beyond the unceremonious handling they had received as captives. This whole ship had reacted, and the dolphins. But what fire was Locust talking about? I did not feel anything, he stated to himself, as well as to the Avakakian. Nothing burning in your head? So you could not think? No. It must have been the Falana magic. Fire eating so that a man is nothing. Only that which fire feeds upon. Karawa. Ross's thoughts flashed back to those few seconds when the dolphins had seemed to go crazy. Carwall had then called out something about the Foana. So the dolphins must have felt this, and Carwall, and Locust, whatever it was, but why not Ross Murdoch? Carwall possessed an extra undefinable sense which gave her contact with the dolphin. Locust had a mind which those could read in turn. But such communication was closed to Ross. At first that realization carried with it a feeling of shame and loss. That he did not have what these others possessed, a subtle power beyond the body, a part of mind, was humbling. Just he had felt shut out and crippled when he had been forced to use the analyzer instead of the sense the others had, so did he suffer now. Then Ross laughed shortly. All right. Sometimes insensitivity could be a defense as it had at the Seagate. Suppose his lack could also be a weapon. He had not been knocked out as the others appeared to be, but for the bad luck of having been captured before the raiders had succumbed, Ross could, perhaps, have been master of this ship by now. He did not laugh now. He smiled sardonically at his own grandiose reaction. No use thinking about what might have been. Just file this fact for future reference. A creaking overhead heralded the opening of the hatch. Light lanced down into the cubby, and a figure swung over and down a side ladder, coming to stand over Ross, feet apart for balancing accommodatingly to the swing of the vessel with the ease of long practice. Thus Ross came to face to face with his first representative of the third party in the Vakakian tangle of power, a rover. The seaman was tall, with a heavier development of shoulder and upper arms than the landsmen. Like the guards, he wore supple armor, but this had been colored or overlaid with a pearly hue, in which other tents wove opaline lines. His head was bare except for a broad, scaled band running from the nape of his neck to the midpoint of his forehead, a band supporting a sharply serrated crest not unlike the erect fin of some Terran fish. Now as he stood, fists planted on hips, the rover presented a formidable figure, and Ross recognized in him the air command. This must be one of the ship's officers. Dark eyes surveyed Ross with interest. The light from the deck focused directly across the raider's shoulder to catch the Terran in its full glare, and Ross fought the need for squinting. But he tried to give back stare for stare, confidence for self-confidence. On Terra in the past, more than one adventurer's life had been saved simply because he had the will and nerve enough to face his captors without any display of anxiety. Sis bravado might not hold here, and now, but it was the only weapon Ross had to hand 
and he used it. You, the rover broke the silence first, you are not of the Proana. He paused as if waiting for an answer. Denial or protest? Ross provided neither. No, not the Proana, nor the scum of the coast either. Again they paused. So what matter a fish has come to the net of Torghul? He called an order aloft. A rope here. We'll have this feast and his fellow out. Loketh and Ross were jerked up to the upper deck, dumped into the midst of a crowd of seamen. The Abakakin was left to lie, but at a gesture from the officer, Ross was set on his feet. He could see the nature of his bonds now, a network of dull gray strands, shriveled and stinking, but not giving in the least when he made another try at moving his arms. Ho! Oh. The officer grinned. This beast does not like the net. You have teeth, beast. Use them. Slice yourself free. A murmur of applause from the crew answered that mild taunt. Ross thought it time for a counter move. I see you do not come too close to those teeth. He used the most defiant words his limited Avakakian vocabulary offered. There was a moment of silence, and then the officer clapped his hands together with a sharp explosion of sound. You would use your teeth, Peace, he asked, and his tone could be a warning. This was going it blind with a vengeance, but Ross took the next leap in the dark. He had the feeling, which often came to him in tight quarters, that he was being supplied from some hard core of endurance and determination far within him with the right words, the fortunate guess. On which one of you? He drew his lips tight, displaying those same teeth, wondering for one startled moment if he should take the rover's query literally. Mister, mister, more than one voice called. One of the crew took a step or two forward. Like Torgul, he was tall and heavy, his overlong arms well muscled. There were scars on his forearms, the seam of one up his jaw. He looked what he was, a very tough fighting man, one who was judged so by peers as seasoned and dangerous. Do you choose to prove your words on Vister Fish? Again the officer had a formal note in his question, as if this was all part of some ceremony. If he meets me as he stands, no other weapons, Ross flashed back. Now he had another reaction from them. There were some jeers a sprinkling of threats as to Vistar's intentions. But Ross caught also the fact that two or three of them had gone silent and were eyeing him in a new and more searching fashion, and that Torgul was one of those. Vistar laughed. Well said, Fish. So be it. Torgul's hand came out palm up, facing Ross. In its hollow was a small object that Terran could not see clearly. A new weapon? Only the officer made no move to touch it to Ross. The hand merely moved in a series of waves in mid-air, then the rover spoke. He carries no unlawful magic. Mr. nodded. He's no Foana. And what need have I to fear the spells of any coast crawler? I am Vister. Again the yells of his supporters arose in hearty answer. The statement held more complete and quiet confidence than any wordly boast. And I am Ross Murdoch, the Terran master rover, tone for tone. 
But does a fish swim with its fins bound to its sides? Or does Mr. Fear a free fish too greatly to face one? His taunt brought the result Ross wanted. The ties were cut from behind to flutter down as withered, useless strings. Ross flexed his arms. Tight as those thongs had been, they had not constricted circulation, and he was ready to meet Vister. The Terran did not doubt that the rover champion was a formidable fighter, but he had not had the advantage of going through one of the agent training courses. Every trick of unarmed fighting known on his own world had been pounded into Ross long ago. His hands and feet could be as deadly weapons as any crook-bladed sword or gun, provided he could get close enough to use them properly. Vister stripped off his weapon belt, put to one side his helmet, showing that under it his hair was plaited into a braid coiled about the crown of his head to provide what must be an extra padding for that strangely narrowed helm. Then he peeled off his armor, peeled it literally indeed catching the lower edge of the scaled covering with his hands and pulling it up and over his head and shoulders as one might skin off a knitted garment. Now he stood facing Ross, wearing little more than the Terran swimming trunks. Ross had dropped his belt and gill pack. He moved into the circle the crew had made. From above came a strong light, centering from a point on the main mast and giving him good sight of his opponent. Vister was being urged to make a quick end of the reckless challenger, his supporters shouting directions and encouragement. But if the rover had confidence, he also possessed the more intelligent and valuable trait of caution in the face of the unknown. He outweighed, apparently outmatched Ross, but he did not rush in rashly as his backers wished him to. They circled, Ross studying every move of the rover's muscles, every slight fraction of change in the other's balance. There would be something to telegraph an attack from the other, for he intended to fight purely in defense. The charge came at last as the crew grew impatient and yelled their impatience to see the prisoner taught a lesson. But Ross did not believe it was that which sent Vister at him. The Avakakian simply thought he knew the best way to take the Terran. Ross ducked so that a hammer blow merely grazed him, but the Terran's stiffened hand swept sideways in a judo chop. Vister gave a whooping cry and went to his knees, and Ross swung again, sending the rover flat to the deck. It had been quick, but not so vicious as it might have been. The Terran had no desire to kill or even disable Vister for more than a few minutes. His victim would carry a couple of aching bruises, and perhaps a hearty respect for a new mode of fighting from this encounter. He could have as easily been dead, had either of those blows landed other than where Ross chose to plant them. Ah! The Terran swung around, setting his back to the foot of the mast. Had he guessed wrong? With their chosen champion down, would their crew now rush him? He had gambled on the element of fair play, which existed in a primitive Terran warrior society after a man-to-man -man challenge. But he could be wrong. Ross waited tense. Just let one of them pull a weapon, and it could be his end. Two of them were aiding Vistar to his feet. The rover's breath whistled in and out of him with that same whooping. And both of his hands rose unsteadily to his chest. 
The majority of his fellows stared from him to the slighter Terran as if unable to believe the evidence of their eyes. Torgo gathered up from the deck the belt and gill pack Ross had shed in preparation for the fight. He turned the belt around over his forearm until the empty knife sheath was uppermost. One of the crew came forward and slammed back into its proper place the long diver's knife which had been there when Ross was captured. Then the rover offered belt and gill pack to Ross. The Terran relaxed. His gamble had paid off. By the present signs, he had won his freedom. And my swordsman, as he buckled on a belt, Ross nodded at Locust, still lying bound where they had pushed him at the beginning of the fight. He is sworn to you? Torgal asked. He is. Loose the coast rat, then, the rover ordered. Now, tell me, stranger, what matter of man are you? Do you come from the Foana, after all? You have a magic which is not our magic. Since the stone of Puka did not reveal it on you, are you from the shades? His fingers moved in the same sign Locust had made before Karawa. Ross gave his chosen explanation. I am from the sea, Captain. As for the Foana, they are no friend to me. Since they hold captive in their keep, one who is my brother kin. Torgal stared him up and down. You say you are from the sea? I have been a rover since I was able to stumble on my two feet across the deck, after the manner and custom of my people. Yet I have never seen your like before. Perhaps your coming means ill to me and mine, but by the law of battle you have won your freedom on this ship. I swear to you, however, stranger, that if ill comes from you, then the law will not hold and you shall match your magic against the strength of Puka, that you shall discover is another thing altogether. I will swear any oath you desire, me captain, that I have no will towards you and yours. There is only one wish I hold, to bring him who I seek out from the Fiona hold, before they make him witch's meat. That will be a task worthy of any magic you may be able to summon, stranger, we have tasted this night of the power of the sea gate. Through it we went in under the will of Puka. We were as weeds whirled about on the waves. Who enters that gate must have more force than any we now know. And you too then have a score to settle with the Foana. We have a score against the Foana, or against our magic, Torgal admitted. Three ships, one island fairing, are gone as if they never were, and those who went with them are of our fleet clan. There is a work of the shadows stretching dark and heavy across the sea, new come into these waters. But there remains nothing we can do this night. We have been lucky to win to sea again. Now, stranger, what shall we do with you? Or will you take to the sea again, since you name it as home? Not here. Ross countered swiftly. He must gain some idea of where they might be in relation to the island. How far from its shore? Carawa and the dolphins, what had happened to them? You took no other prisoners? Ross had to ask. There were more of you? Torgel countered. Yes. No need to say how many, Ross decided. We saw no others. You, all of you, the captain rounded on the still-clustered crew, 
Get about your work. We must raise Kyanad by morning and report to the Council. He walked away, and Ross, determined to learn all he could, followed him into the stern cabin. Here again the Terran was faced with barbaric splendor in carvings, hangings, a wealth of plates and furnishing not too different from the display he had seen in the Wrecker's castle. As Ross hesitated just within the doorway, Torgo glanced back at him. You have your life and that of your man, stranger. Do not ask more of me, unless you have that within your hands to enforce the asking. I want nothing save to be returned to where you took me, Captain. Torgo smiled grimly. You are the sea. You yourself said that. The sea is wide, but it is all one. Through it you must have your own path. Take any you choose, but do not risk my ship again into what lies in wait before the gates of the Foana. Where do you go then, Captain? To Kyanad. You have your own choice, stranger, the sea or our fairing. There would be no way of changing the rover's decision, Ross thought. And even with the gilpack, he could not swim back to where he had been taken. There were no guideposts in the sea but a longer acquaintance with Torgo might be helpful. Kyanad, then, Captain. He made the next move to prove equality and establish himself with this rover, seating himself at the table as one who had the right to share the captain's quarters. This concludes the reading of Chapter 9.